0: Hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about the ancient gods of pre-Islamic Egypt. We'll meet the son of a betrayed king who rose up to conquer his evil, murderous uncle, a usurper to the throne. Sound familiar? This is Breakfast with Gilgamesh. The religion of the ancient Egyptians is a vast tapestry of interconnected stories. Egyptian myths concern themselves largely with the struggle between light and darkness, order and chaos. The myth we're concerned with today is an action-packed and highly entertaining story. It reminds me of a big action blockbuster with lots of impressive special effects and corny one-liners. The world of the Egyptian gods is thickened lore and lower in metaphor. Each character has their part to play, even the bad guys. And from the wild twists and turns that characterize the myth, we're given an elegant and beautiful interrogation of the natural world and the societal order as experienced by the people who believed in and told these stories to their children. Because ancient Egyptian mythology is so interwoven narratively, and because this podcast will be under an hour whenever I can help it, I'll start by setting the stage a little. From the primordial chaos came Nun, the god of creation, and from Nun sprang Ra, Amun, Apep, and Aten, the elder gods. From these celestial dynasties on down, things get a little murky, but eventually we come to Nut, the sky goddess, her husband Geb, the earth god, Konzu, the moon god, and Thoth, the god of order. Egyptian mythology is immensely complex, owing largely to its strong ties to the royal lineage of its ancient rulers. Stories were changed, altered, told one way in one region and another way in a different region, and as far as we know, largely understood by the tellers and audience both to be metaphorical in nature. The gods are not simply patron entities, they are manifestations of what they represent, and what they represent can change. So I hope you'll bear with me as we dive into the murky waters of this vast, rich cultural tradition. A tradition in which symbols and writing had real power here on earth. To write, it was said, was to manifest into reality. This story is Egyptian, but the telling of it is mine, and is my responsibility in the tradition of the oral storyteller. So I hope you'll forgive any embellishments, deviations, or outright flights of fancy that I engage in as I tell it to you. So now, let's begin with the Egyptian epic of Horus and Set. time before time, when the earth was new and great Ra still walked on the earth as its ruler, he in his infinite wisdom forbade the sky goddess Nut from bearing children. For he knew, in his divine way, that the fruit of Nut's womb would bring chaos and disorder to Egypt. Ra decreed a curse upon Nut, as unbreakable as his infinite power. For each of the three hundred and sixty days of the year, Newt will be barren. Newt, thus cursed, sought wisdom, and there were none wiser than Thoth, the god of knowledge. When she begged Thoth to help her break the unbreakable curse, he stroked the bill of his ibis head thoughtfully, and came to a plan. Ra's power was infinite and immovable. There would be no breaking the curse, but perhaps there was a way around it. As she sat in the temple of Thoth, weeping into her hands, Thoth set before her a small table, and on that table placed a game of rods. To break the curse, I will teach you this game, and you will learn to win. For many days, they played the game of rods, and each game Newt would lose. But each time she did, she learned something. She would notice a line of play that she had not seen in the game previous. She would notice a nuance in how Thoth touched his finger to the piece he intended to move, or realize that some number of turns previous, she could have won. After more than a hundred days, she finally won a game, and when she did, Thoth stood and bowed and said, you are ready. Newt approached the dark palace of Konzu, the moon god. The game of rods tucked under her arm as she smiled and slid her hand over Konzu's shoulder. Konzu noticed the game board and gasped. He loved games, loved to trick and think and outwit. And so he challenged Newt to a series of games. To make the games interesting, Newt proposed a series of wagers. She would wager, That for each game she won, he would give up some of his moonlight, and for each game she won, she would give up some of her darkness, allowing him to shine almost as bright as Ra. Konzu agreed with a confident laugh. What could this woman know of games and wagers? After five games and five losses, Konzu had forfeited enough of his light to account for five whole days' worth. Kanzu stormed away, knocking the game board to the ground. Newt didn't even bother to pick it up. She gathered the light she had won, and made her way back to Thoth. Thoth was a god of order, and so he knew that to alter the number of days in a year was an act of chaos. Three hundred and sixty days for each degree in a circle, a perfect system of time. And so when he fashioned these five new days, he decreed that they would exist within no year and be forever known as a festival outside of time for families to rest, celebrate, feast, and make children. And so, with these days fashioned by the wise god, Newt, no longer trapped by Ra's curse, took her husband Geb into her bed and made a child for each of these new days. Osiris, Set, Nephys, Isis and Horus. Osiris was kind and wise, beloved by all. He took his sister Isis for his wife, devoted and loving. Set was a rough man, mean and determined in his purpose. He took Nephthys for his wife, and quickly bore a son, Anubis, but we'll get to him a little later. When Ra left the earthly plane to travel the cosmos on his celestial barge, Osiris came of age. He used his benevolent wisdom to teach the first humans how to till the rich black earth of the Nile, and with the help of his wife, Isis, to cultivate and harvest grain. He was made the king of all men. He taught men to turn the grain into bread and beer. He taught them how to sing, how to write, and how to tell stories. Set and Nephthys resided in the desert, where men lived as nomads, cultivating nothing but sand in the folds of their skin. Set grew insanely jealous of his brother, and harbored murderous intent. In this wild country, Set's emotions manifested as storms that thundered out over the vast wilds of Egypt, but anything that grew here would be covered by sand and dye. There was nothing beautiful in this place, no peace." And Nephthys soon grew tired of the endless turmoil of the desert. She left the temple of Set and made for Kemet, the kingdom of her brother and sister. When she arrived at the shores of the Nile, she was greeted as a queen and embraced by Osiris and Isis passionately. They celebrated being together all day, and as night fell, they made their way to the royal bedchamber, where the gods of Egypt would give in to their distinctly mortal desires. Set, missing his wife, made his way to the royal palace of Kemet as the sun rose over the horizon, and found his wife in the bedchamber of his brother. His hands shook, and his eyes glowed bright red, but just this one time he tempered his anger, and as he made his way back to the desert, he began to plot. Osiris's kingdom had become the richest and most powerful nation on earth, and in his benevolent wisdom Osiris left Kemet to give his knowledge to other peoples all over the world, thus beginning the first era of human civilization. When he returned, Isis and Nephthys held a grand parade for him as he entered the royal city, but it paled in comparison to the grand feast waiting for him on the shores of the Nile. There, Set had prepared a celebration of wine and music for his brother's return. Osiris embraced his brother. And together they drank and sang and were happy as the day gave way to night and the night gave way to dawn set stood and beckoned for his servants to come forth they carried with them a box made of gold ivory and cedar covered in precious stones mined deep under the desert sands osiris sat up in his drunken stupor and marveled at the box it was as beautiful as any object in his entire kingdom He could scarcely believe his brute of a brother was capable of fashioning such a thing set held out his arms and declared that this precious box was made for one man and one man only but he could not say who he challenged the seventy-two guests of the party to climb into the box and if they fit just right the box would be theirs guest after guest climbed into the box some were too small and a cold wind whistled between their bodies and the interior, shooing them out of it. Some were too big, and the lid wouldn't close over their broad shoulders. After all seventy-two guests had tried and failed, Seth turned to his brother and grinned. Osiris, still quite drunk, his head beginning to throb as the sun crept over the eastern wall of the royal city, got up out of his chair and wiped the spilled wine from his robes stumbling toward the box and lifting his leg into it. The guests all watched, their moods turning from jovial to tense, as Osiris hunched down to fit in. A perfect fit, said Osiris.
1: Yes, brother. A perfect fit. Then the box is mine. It could be no
0: one else's. Set slammed down the lid, and all seventy-two guests, collaborators and jealous aristocrats, held down the lid as it was nailed shut. Osiris wailed and pounded on the lid, but it was no use, and when the box was sealed, Set lifted it on his mighty shoulders and heaved it into the Nile, where it floated downstream, never to be seen again, or so thought the usurper-god, who ruled with a cruel and demanding hand, and cast out a grieving Isis and all those loyal to his brother." Night and day the box floated through the mighty Nile River, through reed and over rock, pounded by the waves day and night until it came at last to the base of a tamarisk tree. The spirit of Osiris made the tree strong, and it grew taller and full of life, enveloping the box in its roots. For years Isis wandered the shore of the Nile, dressed in the rags of a peasant, she relied on the kindness of strangers, but never stayed in one place too long. One day, exhausted from walking, she found shade under the great tree, though she didn't yet know that her husband's body lay beneath. She was drawn to it, and spent the hot afternoon protected by its mighty branches. As she dozed off in the cool shade, a dream came to her. In her dream, She saw lightning break the sky like glass, and a sandstorm rise from the south. She saw a hawk weave around the lightning and toward the sandstorm. She knew the hawk to be her son, and as it reared its mighty talons at the storm, a firm hand pushed through the earth beneath her and grabbed her wrists. She yelped, and it woke her from her sleep. The dreams of gods are prophecies, and are not to be taken lightly. She whirled around onto her hands and knees, and began digging between the roots of the great tree, pushing insects and worms aside with her fingers, until they scraped the surface of the box. After many hours, she had pulled the last root that held the box to the earth, and pulled it up from under the tree. She used all her godly strength to force the box open, sending nails and splintered cedar flying everywhere. There in the box was her husband's corpse. His skin had turned green, and yet he was still beautiful to her. She pulled his remains from the box and laid him under the tree's branches, placing her hands upon him and beseeching Ra to bring her husband back to her. As the sun dipped below the tree-line, Ra's eyes found Osiris lying under the tamarisk tree, and he extended his hand. The evening sunlight glimmered Osiris's lips and Isis bent to kiss them, and when she did, his eyes shot open, and beams of white light blasted into the sky. Isis stumbled back, and shielded her eyes as Osiris lifted into the air. Light burst from his gaping mouth, and his body turned upright. As the light from his eyes faded, it was replaced by his wise, deep-set, blue eyes. And as the light left his mouth, it was replaced by warm, sweet-smelling breath. Without words, without premeditation, Isis and Osiris embraced under the tamarisk tree and made love through the darkening twilight. What now, husband? Asked Isis as they watched the stars.
1: Now I reclaim what is mine.
0: The royal palace of Kemet was darkened by constant storm cloud. Osiris's feet sank into the sand that swept the steps into the high courtroom. Set, seated on the pharaoh's throne, saw his brother emerge from the entrance of his court. The priests bowed to Osiris, prostrating themselves on the windswept floor. Set got up, and without a word, rushed towards Osiris. Osiris was caught off guard, and when Set's thick shoulder slammed into his chest, it knocked the wind out of him. Horus, the god of war, and Anubis, the son of Set, watched tense and frozen as Osiris was flung back down the steps. Osiris struggled to his feet, and as he rose, Set's firm hand clasped around his throat. Osiris choked and punched at Set's arm and shoulder. He struck Set's cheek with a glancing blow, and Set snarled and struck Osiris in the nose, spilling blood on the sand. Anubis watched his father pound Osiris's nose into his head, and winced as Set ripped limb from limb. When Osiris's corpse was a pile of bones and guts on the stone steps of the royal temple, Set squatted down, and with his bare hands tore the remains into yet more pieces. In disgusted silence the court watched, and Anubis put his hand to his mouth, as his father threw the pieces with all his might, this way and that, far away through the air, in all directions. Osiris's blood and bile oozed from Set's hands, and he made his way back up the steps with a sigh. Set could see the expression on his son's face, but had no words for him. This was the way of things now. There would be no more challenges to the rule of the desert god. Set sat on his throne and let his brother's blood dry on his skin. The storm that thrashed above the royal city lasted for days, and Set was in such a state that he didn't notice that Horus had disappeared entirely. Isis sat under the tamarisk tree as Horus approached her. How did you find me? asked Isis. My task is given
1: to me by the Most High. Ra watched the usurper of Kenneth tear your husband limb from limb. I have come to restore order.
0: If Isis was shocked by the news of her husband's second death, She didn't show it to Horus. What does a god of war know of order? Horus grunted and sat cross-legged among the Tamarisk tree's great roots.
1: A war won is a law-enforced, Queen Mother.
0: Isis gasped. You... Yes, said Horus.
1: I know you are with child. The heir to the throne of Kemet will need his mother and his father but more than that he will need instruction. The path laid before him, even before he is born, is that of a warrior.
0: Isis curled her hands around her stomach, and considered Horus skeptically. You served in Set's court. How can I trust you with something as precious as my son? From behind Horus emerged Anubis, and Isis scrambled to her feet, for at a glance he looked very much like his father.
1: Queen Mother, said Anubis, my father, my uncle, my mother, and you. All of you are agents of chaos. Ra rides his boat in the heavens so that we may be reminded of the order your birth shattered. Let us help you. The humans have a word, Mot. It means harmony, balance, order. I have never known these things, but if your son's vengeance will bring it, then I would do more than see the defeat of my father.
0: I would help your son be its instrument. With these words, Anubis secured Isis's trust, and when her godling was born, she gave him to Horus. Horus and the godling trained every moment from the day of his birth. They trained with sword, spear and hand. They practiced games of wit to sharpen the boy's mind. They wrestled the wild beasts of Egypt as if they were playmates, taking hippopotamus by the teeth and whirling them on their backs, stalking jaguars and ripping the whiskers from their cheeks, chasing jackals for miles without stopping for rest. As Horus and the godling trained, Isis and Anubis spent these years searching the world for the remains of Isis's husband, Anubis knew that Osiris must give his blessing for his son's ascension to be considered legitimate. After many years, on the first day of the year, under the gaze of Ra himself, the four met under the tamarisk tree. The godling had grown to a strong, keen-eyed young man, and Horus had grown suddenly very old, as if he was a mortal man. His back had hunched, and his figure had begun to sag, Isis and Anubis laid out the pieces of Osiris's body among the roots of the tree which grew so strong with his essence. They used foot after foot of white bandage to reassemble Osiris, and the godling watched in awe as his mother's hands pressed life back into his father's dismembered corpse. Osiris did not wake with the fanfare he had before. Instead he rose, he groaned weakly, and struggled to open his eyes, which had turned completely black. Isis stood and helped her husband to his feet. As he rose, the sky grew dark, yet cloudless. Anubis sniffed the air with his jackal's nose, and the godling managed to yank his mother and father away just as the ground beneath them crumbled away. The deep roots of the tamarisk tree bent, and a portal swirled beneath the tree, beckoning with a chill wind. Ra has
1: decreed that Osiris must live in the underworld as ruler of the dead, said Anubis. To spurn death once is miraculous, to spurn it twice is blasphemy. The only return to order is that death take Osiris as its master, for he
0: has truly mastered it. Isis touched her husband's cheek and whispered, Please, husband, behold our son, bless him for he avenges both of your deaths. Osiris turned to his son, but he did not speak, for his tongue, the last and only part of his body they could not recover, had been eaten by Set. The godling bent to his knees and bowed deeply to his father. I swear to
1: you, father, I will restore harmony to the realm you loved. I will defeat my uncle and rule Egypt with the wisdom of my heritage.
0: Isis wiped tears from her eyes and looked to Anubis. How can my husband rule the dead if he cannot speak? How can he pass judgments and weigh the hearts of men if he cannot decree their eternal fate? Anubis placed a hand on his heart and stepped forward, meeting Osiris's eyes.
1: I will serve the lord of the dead. As your son fights to
0: restore harmony here in this life, I shall ensure it is kept in the next. The godling watched Anubis, Isis, and Osiris descend below the tamarisk tree, and disappear in the darkness, which closed around them and belched forth the earth it had displaced, as if nothing had happened.
1: There is one thing left to be done,
0: said Horus, placing both his frail old hands on the godling's shoulders.
1: What is it, master? What last task must I complete? Horus
0: chuckled and squeezed the boy to him.
1: You must promise me now two things.
0: Of course, master, said the godling.
1: The first is that you will, as your first act as a god, take my soul into your own, that you may learn all that I know of combat. Your body and mind are incredible, but they will be no match for set unless you combine your power with my own. My time on this earth is over, I entrust the duty of war to you, because you will be a just ruler, and only a just ruler can fight a just war. You will take my title, my wisdom, my strength, and my name. You will be Horus, son of Osiris, ruler of all Egypt. Do you understand? Yes, master.
0: I swear it, said the godling named Horus, son of Osiris, ruler of all Egypt. And what
1: is the second promise? That you will loosen up a bit, lad.
0: Horus the Elder laughed as light burst from his frail form and bent like tendrils into Horus the Younger's body. He grew taller, his chest swelled, and when the last of the light faded under his dark skin, he was a man. The waters of the Nile shimmered in the noonday sun as Set lounged on a skiff surrounded by servants shading him with palm fronds. As the skiff floated serenely down the current, some of the servants noticed that the water beneath the skiff had begun to bubble. Before they could alert the god-king, the skiff was flung into the air as a giant hippopotamus thrust through the water. Servants, furniture, and reeds went flying in every direction, and as Set was tossed into the river he changed his form to that of a crocodile, and made for the hippo's neck. The hippo wheeled and slammed its jaws tight around Set's scaly green torso. So Set transformed into a hippo himself, and as he grew in shape, he pushed the other hippo back. The two animals rammed and bit at each other. Their fighting sent water into the air in such quantity that it began to rain. People from all down the Nile could hear the thunderous blows and roars as the hippos clashed. The two animals were at a stalemate, and each retreated to an opposing shore, where they took their incredible true forms. Set was out of breath, as he rose to his feet and wiped the mud and sand from his shoulders. From across the river, his eyes met those of Horus, and he was shocked, for he recognized this new foe, but couldn't name him. Who does? said Set, as storm clouds gathered all over Kemet.
1: I am the son of your brother, Osiris, usurper. I am the true king of Egypt.
0: Set squinted and thunder rumbled in the distance as his anger grew.
1: Osiris is dead, little bird. There is nothing here for you save the same fate as him. Tell me your name before I split you like I split your father. I am Horus, god of might. God of the sky. God of kings. Horus, said Set. I'm afraid we've already got a god by that name, little bird. Horus the Elder was my mentor, and in me dwells all his martial wisdom. Wisdom I will employ to end your reign and free Kenneth from your clutches. If Horus is in you, growled Set, then he is a traitor. And there is only one fate befitting a traitor.
0: Set fell to the ground, and took his crocodile form once again. He stomped into the river toward Horus, who became a hippo once more, and roared as Set's jaws sprang from the river toward him. Set's jaws clapped together as rain pounded the river and darkness enveloped all of Kemet. Horus's mighty jaws clasped around Set's tail and threw him to the shore. Then he charged Set head-first, and sent him crashing into a group of trees. Set, dazed, took his true form just as Horus's jaws came crashing down on him. He grabbed each jaw and held Horus's mouth open so as not to be swallowed, digging his heels into the earth and straining against Horus's power. The part of Set's heart that wasn't full of murderous rage was… a little impressed at the godling's fighting ability. Set summoned the last of his strength. To wrench Horus to the ground and pin him. Horus, surprised, receded to his true form and scrambled to his feet, tackling Set to the ground by the waist. The two gods struggled on the ground, rolling back and forth, trading mighty blows. ENOUGH OF THIS, roared Set, whirling to his feet and becoming a jaguar. Horus leapt forward to grab Set, but the Desert god swiped at him, slashing his face with Cat's claw. Horus screamed and reeled backwards as blood squirted from his left eye. Set pounced on Horus and bared his fangs, but an arrow found his shoulder, and he yelped, taking his true form again and holding the fresh wound. He looked up and saw his sister, Isis, holding a bow. Horus used the split-second chance to escape, using the last of his strength to take the form of a falcon and flying off. Set stumbled back letting his glare break from Isis's eyes, nursing the arrow in his shoulder. The battle at the river was the talk of the heavens. The gods had watched Set kill Osiris, had watched Anubis betray his father, and when Set and Horus clashed, it got really interesting. Did Horus have the right to challenge Set? After all, Set was his uncle. Sure, Set was a usurper, and a tyrant. He disrupted the natural order, and had committed the first ever murder, his own brother the victim. But even still, he was the king now, and Horus was just a young upstart, with a chip on his shoulder. That being said, Horus was of noble blood, he was virtuous, and sought only to right the wrongs done to his father and his country. And something else, something about him intrigued the gods, the way he looked at you, the way he stood. There was something of raw in the boy, and not only that, Horus took the same animal totem as the king of the gods. Something burned in the boy's heart that made him intimidating even to Set, who had petitioned the gods to punish Horus for his impudence. Isis met her son under the tamarisk tree, where he lay weeping gobs of blood from his eye. Isis took her boy's head in her lap and wiped the blood from his face, singing to him gently to calm him. Isis looked up, and between the branches of the tree could see the full moon staring down at them. She thought of her mother, beating the moon in games of chance to win the days that birthed her and her strange family. Isis reached out with her thumb and index finger, and plucked the moon from the sky. Then, ever so gently, she used her free hand to prop open Horus's wounded socket, and in it placed the moon. Horus hissed at the pain, but after some blinking and rubbing, he rose from his mother's lap and looked around. He could see again. I'm going back, to defeat my uncle and finish this. Enough, said Isis, raising to her feet to tower over her child. No more fighting. I won't see my child meet the fate my husband did. We cannot win every war by tooth and claw. We cannot keep scrapping with Set until the end of time, my son. Horus was baffled. He was born to accomplish his vengeance, born to end the reign of Set and rule Egypt. He could not accept his mother's words, and flew off back to Kemet to face his uncle again in combat. When Horus arrived at the royal palace, he was greeted by bowing mortals who seemed to be expecting him. He was led up the steps from which his father had been tossed, and into the high court, where Set sat upon the throne of Osiris. Horus made to spring at Set, but was struck by Set's indifference. He sat with his chin in his fist, his leg crossed over his lap, a bored expression on his face. Face me, usurper! cried Horace. Oh, shut up, said Set. Horace was confused to say the least. Do you know what they're doing up there? said Set, pointing his finger in the air.
1: They're deciding what to do with us. We've become the talk of the Pantheon nephew. Horus the Younger and Set the Kingslayer. Hated enemies. Bound by fate, did you battle for the very soul of Kammet. All very entertaining, I'm sure.
0: Horace didn't know what to say. He dropped his guard and looked around the court. It was the first time he had stepped foot in the court of his inheritance.
1: So, said Set, now all we can do is wait for their decision. Don't you hate that? Your fate Out of your own hands? Having no control over your own destiny? I suppose you must know what that's like. You were born to avenge your father, but I wonder, if you accomplish it, what then? Horace sneered. I will rule as a just king. Set rolled his eyes. A just king? What does that even mean, boy? Why do you want to be a just king? Because it is what I was born to do. Ah, said Set. As good a reason as any. Do you know what I was born to do? You were born to rule the deserts. Born to rule the southern wilds. Born to make storms that the rain might feed the harvest. Set shrugged.
0: Is that so? Of course it is. I'm not sure, nephew. I'm just not. Horus's face twisted in confusion. I kept telling myself just what you said. I
1: lived in the desert with my wife, and I commanded the south, commanded the desert, commanded the storms. I told myself that it didn't matter if I wanted to do these things. It only mattered that I did them. And you know what I realized?
0: Set got up from his throne and approached Horus.
1: I realized that I didn't like. My lot in life. And if I didn't like it, then maybe I wasn't meant to like it. And if I wasn't meant to like it, maybe I was meant to change it. So you know what I did? I went to tell my brother that we didn't have to concern ourselves with this place anymore. That we could be what we wanted. But of course, when I arrived here at the palace, I realized that my brother was happy with his lot more than happy. Happy to take what he wanted when he wanted it, regardless of what it meant to anyone else. So I decided, right then, that I would take what I wanted, and I wanted what my brother had. Does any of this make sense to you, boy?
0: Set stood now before Horus, their eyes locked. Horus moved to step back, but Set grabbed his shoulder and pulled him closer so that Horace could smell the scent of blood on Set's breath.
1: What do you want, little bird?
0: Set lifted Horace's chin with his finger, so their eyes met.
1: What do you really
0: want? sun rose on the new day, Horus and Set approached the riverbank of the Nile, where they had clashed. As the morning sunlight glittered on the water, the earth began to shake, and in the sky above, a great boat floated towards them. Set and Horus fell to their knees and bowed their heads as Ra, god of all creation, god of the sun, emerged from the boat, followed by a procession of animal-headed gods. Ra's broad shoulders cast deep shadows over the two quarreling gods, and when he plunged his crooked staff into the sandy shore, a gaping portal swirled where it struck, and from that portal emerged Osiris, Isis, and Anubis. The gods all lined up along the river's edge, and from the temples, huts, and buildings came thousands of mortal people to witness the fate of their world. Ra lifted his right hand, and from its palm grew an orb of light that became a golden disk. Ra set the disk in the air, and it floated there. From among the gods stepped forward a small girl. She placed her foot on the water of the river's surface, and stood upon the gentle waves, walking along the surface of the water, and facing Set and Horus. I am Matt, daughter of Ra. My word is law. My decree is truth. My choice is perfect. Horus and Set both stood, and Set turned to Horus.
1: I know what choice they're going to make. Order must be kept, yes? Their version of it anyway?
0: Horus's moon eye twitched, and he looked over his shoulder at Set, who seemed smaller than he was a moment ago. sadder
1: chaos is cruel little bird but chaos is freedom order might sound nice might feel safe but if your place in that order is to suffer whose justice is that
0: horace watched stunned as set prostrated himself at his feet matt waved her little hand and the golden disc that ra had formed floated to horace and perched itself upon his head a golden crown for the new king of egypt Mortal people cheered as the sky turned bright blue, and the gods stepped back into the boat, eager to get back to heaven above. Matt stepped back on shore, and took Set by the hand, leading him towards the boat. Set couldn't bear to look at his brother, but as he passed Anubis, he placed a firm hand on his shoulder, a small act of comfort and forgiveness, for this could not have happened any other way. Set stepped into the boat, And took his post at the front, where a golden spear formed in his hands. He would accompany Ra on his journey across the sky each day, and help to defeat the great serpent Apophis before it devoured Ra and ended the world. Even the god of chaos would be made to contribute to the order of things. Horus, king of kings, ruled justly for many years, and when he ceded the throne to be ruled by human kings, he remembered what his uncle told him. The End. Egyptian mythology has some of the most distinct and elegant storytelling in all of antiquity. Its cultural value is immense and its practical value contributed to more than 20 dynastic generations of rulers, a vast tapestry of scientific, architectural, and spiritual bloom that we still feel the reverberations of to this day. Few cultures can rival the influential magnitude of pre-Islamic Egypt, which is all the more incredible when you consider how many times it's been lost to time and rediscovered. Egyptian mythology was used to fortify and mythologize the rule of its ancient kings, the pharaohs, who would name themselves for the gods of this religion and alter the themes and context of these stories to cement their earthly power. The complexity of metaphor that these stories carry is no accident. The great thinkers, rulers, and spiritualists of the culture that birthed these stories knew them to be metaphorical in nature, and so quite wisely, quite ahead of their time, eschewed a proper canon in favor of extracting new meanings and contexts for these stories as time went on and new generations retold them this story the epic of horus and set is a metaphor for kingly power triumphing over foreign influence set the god of chaos deserts and foreigners disrupts the order of things by murdering his rightly instated brother who has the interests of the egyptian people at heart where set has only ambition for himself this tragedy is then avenged by Horus, who reestablishes order by defeating chaos and beginning the age of earthly kings. It is, at its heart, propaganda. This phenomenon isn't unique to Egypt, but because the culture that birthed this tale is so influential, and because the beats of the story are so prevailing across many cultural traditions, the epic of Horus and Set has become the most popular of all Egyptian myths. The narrative beats bear a striking resemblance to the stories of Hamlet, the Shakespearean tragic hero, and Simba, the titular Lion King. Whether or not those more contemporary stories took influence from the epic is inconsequential, as they became popular and pervasive in the cultures that they sprang from, independent of the Egyptian version. Though it does speak to how powerful this plot is, that it can capture the imagination across time and culture so consistently. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com breakfastwithgilgamesh breakfast with Gilgamesh, and if you'd like to read fiction by your humble host and author, accompanied by the incredible work of talented artists, you can find it at zkleverton.com. A special thanks to Sam Beck, who designed my beautiful logo, Thomas Holden, who composed the wonderful music that you heard throughout, and to all the friends and partners who made this project possible with their time and insight. Next episode, The Monkey Under the Mountain. Join us then for more Breakfast with Gilgamesh.